0: What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. April 2nd, 1988, in Kansas City, Missouri. A man, wearing nothing but a dog collar, was found walking around in the street, seeking help. This man had just escaped the clutches of a twisted individual and was taken to a house nearby where he pleaded for police to be called. A police investigation revealed a horrific series of murders that took place at the hands of one man, Robert Burdella, who calculatingly and methodically kidnapped and tortured young, vulnerable men before killing
1: them. To him, they weren't living, feeling, breathing individuals. They were literally just pieces of meat, and he would do with them what he wanted. He took hundreds
0: of photos and kept detailed notes to document his perverse acts using disturbing methods to cause unimaginable pain and suffering.
2: This was not a spree killing. This was not somebody out of control of their actions. This is somebody who knows what he's doing, knows what he wants to do, and does it. That is the definition of evil.
0: After murdering them, he dissected his victims with such precision that he became known as the Kansas City Butcher.
3: He would cut the bodies up with a butcher knife and a chainsaw and then put them in the trash.
0: This is What Makes a Killer, a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Notoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Robert Berdella... A Kansas City Butcher. This killer story begins in 1949. Robert Andrew Burdella Jr. was born on January 31st, the first of two sons. He was raised in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio,
1: in a strict Catholic household. His father worked at the Ford Motor Company. His mother was a homemaker, so they were very much the traditional American nuclear family.
0: Burdella was a shy, intelligent child who struggled to fit in at school. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley
1: describes Burdella's youth. He was bullied by his peers because he did stand out as different. He wore very thick glasses. He went to the algebra club, he collected stamps. So there was that sense in which he always felt that isolation from his peer group. Then in his mid-teens, his world was turned upside down. Berdella's father died of a heart attack when he was 16. And this did have quite a significant impact on him because his mother remarried and she went on to set up another home with somebody else. And I think that Berdella really did feel a sense of rejection here. He was part of his mother's past. The world had moved on and he was left behind. Around this same time, Berdella had been working a part-time job. There's a particular incident that Berdella later recalls that is potentially significant. Berdella claims that he was raped when he was an adolescent at a restaurant where he worked. Berdella
0: never reported the incident to police. In 1967, after graduating high school, Berdella enrolled in the Kansas City Art Institute. At this time, he also began exploring his sexuality. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel believes that Berdella's father would have taken issue with his son's orientation.
4: He'd realized that he was certainly gay. And it was pretty apparent to him that his father would not have approved of that.
1: He's also been brought up in the Catholic Church, so I think there is very much an underlying sense of shame there. By 1969, Berdella
0: was experimenting with drugs. He dropped out of college after professors failed to understand his disconcerting art projects, often involving live animals.
4: He may have been a bit nerdy to look at, and a bit strange, but he was clearly talented.
0: Now in need of a job, Berdella carved out a new career path.
4: Berdella started working as a short order chef and quickly rose.
1: He developed quite a good reputation in the local community as people were talking about the food that he was making. And he bought his own house. He had quite a bright future. He really was a figure that commanded respect in the local community. By his mid to late 20s, Berdella
0: had also developed a passion for collecting things. This hobby soon became a business in its own right.
4: He was obviously a very good chef, but it wasn't his only talent. He also collected art and antiquities. This was a man of quite considerable taste, working at some of the best restaurants and at the same time operating a boutique called Bob's Bizarre, bizarre, selling art and antiquities.
0: The boutique became Berdella's full-time job and he began to rent out rooms in his home to help make ends meet. Some of those tenants were vulnerable young men who'd receive room and board in return for doing odd jobs around the house and at the antique shop.
4: People who'd run away from home, young gay men, uh, couples, uh, rather a sort of benevolent figure. As far as the local community concerned, an entirely upright and straightforward citizen.
0: In 1984, Bradella's behavior took a strange turn.
4: His house had become literally a warehouse of all sorts of odd objects. This man, who previously had been a sort of pillar of the local community, was becoming increasingly odd. And he also, I think, began to despise the young men who came seeking shelter.
0: In March of that year, -year 35-year-old Berdella began a relationship with a 19-year-old former sex worker named Jerry Howell. Troy Cole was a detective sergeant with the Kansas City Police Department at the time.
5: Berdella knew his dad, who also had a stall in the flea market. So Jerry hung around with his dad, so Berdella knew both of them well.
1: Jerry had had some issues with drugs. He'd had some issues with the criminal justice system. And I think Berdella was was seen to be this trusted figure. So when Berdella offers to help him, he offers to lend him money. Jerry takes him up on this. He doesn't pay him back though.
0: On July 15th, 1984, Berdella picked Jerry up from the flea market to help with some jobs, but Jerry was more interested in getting high. Berdella gave him drugs and alcohol and they headed home. But Berdella was getting increasingly frustrated with Jerry using him. So he gave the young man some stronger medication that caused him to pass out.
4: When the victim became virtually unconscious, Bordella would inject him with drugs, giving him absolute control over the body. He would then repeatedly rape the victim over a very extended period in this case, 27 hours.
0: Forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton goes into more detail.
4: He's not only
2: sexually assaulted, he is struck with a metal ruler. He's given a cocktail of drugs before he's even killed. So we have a mixture of somebody who's going to be confused by what's going on. They're going to be confused by the drugs they've been given. And then he's being physically and sexually assaulted. It's just a horrific way to die.
0: The following night, Jerry was dead. Berdella then meticulously detailed the torture and murder in extensive notes and with photographs.
4: One of the things that Berdella did immediately after Jerry had died was to note down and describe precisely what he did with the body, which effectively was to drain it of blood and then dismember it and wrap it up in garbage bags. He kept a detailed record because in many ways that was the kind of character that he was. He took pride in his work. He was completely cold and isolated, interested only in his own satisfaction, which makes it all the more chilling.
0: Berdella bagged up the remains along with all the instruments he'd used and dumped them in the trash, which was picked up the next morning. On July 8th,
1: Jerry's father contacted the police. Jerry's father reports him missing, and Berdella is interviewed by the police in relation to this. And Berdella says, well, I dropped him off at the 7-Eleven, the convenience store. And at this point in time, why wouldn't the police believe Berdella? He's this upstanding figure in the community. He's not somebody who would appear to have a reason to lie. So unfortunately, this case goes cold.
0: The officers received a tip from one of Berdella's previous tenants, Todd.
4: One of Jerry's acquaintances, who was also known to Berdella, actually tipped off the police that they thought that Berdella may have been involved or at least given Jerry a hot shot injection. But there was no body. No one knew where Jerry was.
0: Berdella was put under surveillance, but no evidence was ever found.
5: Jerry Howell's father always thought that Berdella had done something to his kid. He just couldn't prove it. and uh, but, but yes, he was very suspicious of him.
0: Jerry Howell's body was never discovered. Robert Berdella had developed an appetite for torture and murder, and after getting away with his first crime, he began to look for ever-increasingly horrific ways to get his sexual kicks. Until this point, Berdella was seen as an upstanding member of the local community. Nine months after torturing and murdering 19-year-old Jerry Howell, Berdella took his next victim.
1: So Robert Sheldon was somebody who had stayed with Berdella before at his house. So there was a degree of trust in this relationship, and it was trust that Berdella really did take advantage of. On April 10th, 20-year-old Robert
0: Sheldon, a known drug addict, appeared at Berdella's door looking for somewhere to stay after an argument with his girlfriend. Sheldon had barely set foot inside when Berdella pounced. Forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton and criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley share more of what happened in Berdella's home.
2: He keeps him for four days. Automatically, you know that this is going to be somebody who's in distress. He starts to escalate his cruelty with this victim. He injects drain cleaner into his eyes. He fills his ears with caulking material. There's damage to the hands from piano wire. He's hitting him with a rubber mallet. All of these things are acts of cruelty and they would not kill you. It's subduing the victim.
1: He did some horrendous things to him, but the thing that really stood out for me was the tattoo that he gave this victim on his shoulder. He was almost branding this man, saying, you are mine, I own you and I possess you.
0: Like he had with his first victim, Berdella documented his methods by writing extensive notes. This time, though, he went one step further and included himself in the photographs with his terrorized victim. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel believes Berdella kept meticulous records because he was proud and wanted to remember it all.
4: He wanted an absolute record of everything he'd done It was a certain amount of pride. There is no doubt whatever that that's what was in his mind. He documented it because he was proud of it.
0: On April 14th, Berdella arrived home to find a familiar workman on the roof of his property. Concerned that Robert would be discovered, Berdella decided to kill him.
1: And he becomes quite paranoid because he knows this guy. So Berdella takes matters into his own hands and he goes and places a plastic bag over the head of his victim, essentially ending his life.
0: Berdella then began what would become his ritual of cutting up his victim's body piece by piece.
2: Dismembering a body is not the easiest thing in the world to do. But if you have some knowledge, like a surgeon or a chef, then you can quite effectively dismember a body, and that makes it easier to dispose of.
0: This gruesome expertise in chopping up bodies later earned Berdella the nickname, the Kansas City Butcher. In keeping with his obsessive collecting, this time Berdella decided that he wanted to keep a souvenir.
4: a second victim, Robert, he dismembered the body and cut off the head But this time, he didn't put it all into black garbage bags and put it out for the garbage truck. He kept the head first in the freezer in his house, and he later buried it in the garden where it decomposed as a kind of trophy of the killing.
1: And this is really significant for me because The head is what gives somebody their identity. It's what makes them a human. I think by keeping the head, Berdella wants to be able to say, I'm the one that has depersonalized this individual. I'm the one that's dehumanized them.
0: Berdella had now tortured and murdered two people without getting
1: caught. And just two
0: months later in June, he struck again.
1: Mark was a young man who had helped out around Badella's house. He'd mown the lawn for him a few times, and Badella discovered him intoxicated in his shed one day. He invites him into his home, and so begins the process of torture, as had been the case with previous victims.
0: 20-year-old Mark Wallace was gagged and injected with a cocktail of drugs to sedate him.
2: Mark was Badella's third victim, And again, I think we have, with this, the escalation and the experimentation. We have injection of drugs. He's used the rubber mallet again to strike his victim. But now he's applying electric shocks.
0: When Berdella returned from work that evening, he found Mark trying to free himself. Berdella sedated him again before continuing to rape and torture him.
2: It's almost as if he has a compliant victim And he's thinking, what will this do? Electric shocks are rarely fatal, but they can be tremendously painful.
0: Like the last time, Bordello recorded his barbarity in his diary. On June 23rd, 1985, he wrote, 7 AM, no signs of life.
1: He died as a result of the torture. And in previous cases, we've seen this happen before.
2: He's dismembered with safety razor, a knife and a saw, and then literally left out with the rubbish.
0: With three local men now missing, rumors among Kansas
1: City sex workers began to spread. The male sex workers of Kansas City had developed quite a wariness of Robert Badella. He'd developed something of a reputation at this time for being aggressive with people, for wanting to tie them up, wanting to aggressively rape them. So there was definitely a sense in which this guy was somebody to steer clear of. This guy was potentially dangerous.
4: Burdella was well-known for haunting gay bars as the gay community but he was also very well known for wanting to be in complete control. He did not have a good reputation. And many of the people that came into contact with him warned each other in that really quite small community.
0: Despite his aggressive reputation, Berdella was still trusted by some individuals. On September 26, 1985, Walter Ferris, a married man and an acquaintance of Berdella, turned up at his house. Once he walked in the door, his fate was
1: sealed. Walter asked Badella whether he could stay at his house. And I think in this, Badella sees another opportunity. And so begins a process again of torture and of absolutely horrendous pain and discomfort.
0: Badella found new and terrible ways to inflict more suffering upon his victim.
2: With Badella's fourth victim, We've got another development of the behavior. We've still got electric shocks that he'd used on his previous victim. We've got injection of drugs. We've got sexual assault. And one of the things he uses with this victim is ketamine. Ketamine is a tranquilizer. It is used therapeutically, but it's known that it can cause horrific hallucinations and it has to be used very carefully in a therapeutic environment. So potentially we're looking at all sorts of horrible hallucinations added to the horrible things that are actually happening to him. It is a horrific set of circumstances that one cannot even really begin to imagine.
0: Yet again, Berdella documented each and every step in minute detail.
4: Berdella by now was... Escalating his torture, extraordinary things were done to these poor men. And yet again, there was an exact record of what he could survive. I suspect part of the reason for that was that Burdella wanted to see how much a human body could take, what it could accept. He wanted to test everything to its limits. He wanted to see how far. could I, Can he take that? Could he take more?
1: In less than 24 hours... Walter was dead. Walter Ferris died at around midnight, the day after he was captured by Robert Berdella. Berdella disposed of Walter's body in the usual fashion, so he dismembered it in his bathtub, and he put the pieces of Walter's body out with the trash.
0: Days after his disappearance, Walter's wife reported him missing to the police. Troy Cole was the lead detective on the Berdella case. To his wife
5: and mother suspected Berdella, because the last time that Walter left the house, he said, I'm going over to Berdella's and he was never seen again.
0: For the second time in approximately 15 months, Berdella was questioned and put under surveillance, but investigators quickly hit a dead end.
5: The missing persons unit did an investigation. They did their best to uh, further the investigation along, but they were just unsuccessful. There was not enough evidence to charge him. They went to his house. They tried to buy drugs undercover from him. There was various things they did to try to, uh, to make a case. They, they were just unsuccessful.
0: In just over a year, Berdella had detained, savagely tortured, and killed four men. Each murder he committed increased in brutality, and his dark imagination seemed to know no limits. Yet he continued the pretense of being an upstanding, if not eccentric, member of the local community. And police had no real reason to link him with the disappearance of the men.
4: The police had no suitable cause to search the house. So as far as they were concerned, Berdella was simply helping the police with their inquiries. They had no concrete evidence whatever against Burdella at that point.
0: It probably won't come as a surprise to you to know that in the last year, rates of anxiety and depression have doubled in the U.S. And sometimes it can take weeks to get a traditional therapy appointment. That is where Cerebral comes in. Cerebral is an online mental health service that offers prescription medication, counseling, and therapy for anxiety, depression, ADHD, insomnia, and more. It's one of the few services that provides prescription medication online through a licensed provider and ships medications straight to your door so you don't have to deal with going to the pharmacy. With the Cerebral Mobile app, it's like having your personal care team wherever you are. You can message your care team and access self-care resources wherever you are. Connect with your counselor and therapist on your own schedule through your laptop or through the Cerebral Mobile app. You'll have access to affordable treatments that are one-third the price of traditional therapy. Options are available with or without insurance, and Cerebral is in-network for several insurers, and they're working every day to grow their partnerships. within network your monthly cost is even lower. For listeners of What Makes a Killer, you can receive 65% off your first month of medication management and care counseling at Cerebral.com what. Go to Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L dot com slash what for 65% off your first month. That's just a total of 30 bucks to get started. Join Cerebral today on their mission to make quality mental health care accessible and affordable for all. It's now June 17th, 1986, and Berdella is out on the prowl. In the red light district of Kansas City, he picked up 23-year-old casual sex worker and drug addict, Todd Stoops.
4: Bordella's next victim, Todd, had already had contact with him over a number of years. Indeed, has suggested to the police that Bordella might have been guilty of killing his first victim with an injection, which was never proven.
1: Badella was sexually attracted to Todd, and Todd and his wife had actually spent some time living in Robert Badella's house in exchange for sexual favors that, that Todd provided to Badella with his wife's knowledge. So this couple, they were very vulnerable, and Badella took advantage of that vulnerability. When Todd needs money for drugs, Badella sees another opportunity here.
0: As soon as Todd got inside, Berdella got to work. Over a period of two weeks, he subjected him to a series of ferocious attacks.
2: If what happened to Walter was horrific, he manages to outdo himself with Todd. So we have nearly a fortnight of captivity with torture, whipping, sexual assault again, all sorts of horrific physical acts to degrade, to cause pain, but he's also once again organized, he's planning. He thinks injecting Dreno into the eyes will blind his victim, which it does, makes it more difficult to escape. He injects it into the voice box to stop him screaming. These are not the acts of a madman, these are planned, deliberate actions of somebody who knows what he's doing and why he's doing it.
1: Badella took extensive photographs of the torture and the demise of Todd. I think Badella felt that Todd was a, a significant victim for him, he felt that attraction to him. And it wouldn't surprise me if he'd been at the center of quite a lot of fantasies he'd had about having a sex slave. On July 1st, 1986, Todd died of
0: septic shock from an infection caused by his injuries. Like his previous victims, Berdella dismembered Todd's body and left his sealed remains to be picked up by trash collectors. On June 23, 1987, less than a year later, the Kansas City butcher saw his next opportunity.
1: Larry Pearson was a sex worker who needed some bail bond money. So Robert Berdella says to him, I will bail you out, I'll give you the money, as long as you come and stay in Ohio for a week with my family so larry agrees to do this and then when they arrive back from this vacation Badella takes him captive
2: once again we have escalation of this behavior we started with cruelty it's escalating and escalating we now have a victim kept for six weeks tortured sexually assaulted
0: despite the relentless torture larry fought back
4: larry didn't know what to do. He, he knew he wanted to survive as best he could until finally, in what must have been utter despair, Larry bit Bordella's penis during oral sex. The injury to Bordella's penis was so severe, he went to hospital.
1: Bordella calls a taxi and during the time while he's waiting for the taxi, he kills his victim.
4: When he's dead, Bordella
2: has the sense to try and keep the property cool to slow down decomposition, to reduce smells produced. Once again, these are all unconscionable acts, but they are planned, they are deliberately undertaken. This is somebody who is in control of what he's doing.
0: When Bordella returned from the hospital, he dismembered Larry's body.
4: Bordella was so angry at the injury that had been caused to him that he was determined to take out the maximum punishment and revenge on the man who had the temerity to actually hurt him. It was the first time anyone had tried to hurt him. And so, yet again, he dismembered the body, and yet again, cut off the head. Only this time, he went out into the garden, dug up Robert's head, put Larry's in the same hole, and proceeded to bring Robert's head into the house, clean it up, take the teeth out, put them in two envelopes and put the skull, which was all that remained at that point, into a closet in the upstairs of his house.
1: HEADS ARE VERY, VERY SIGNIFICANT FOR BADELLA, AND I THINK THE HEAD OF LARRY IS A VERY IMPORTANT ONE, BECAUSE THIS IS THE GUY WHO HAS COME CLOSEST TO BADELLA'S FANTASY OF HAVING THIS SEX SLAVE. HE'S THE GUY who SURVIVED FOR SIX WEEKS. HE'S SURVIVED THE LONGEST, AND I THINK HE WANTS TO COMMEMORATE THAT.
0: Bordella's MONSTROUS DESIRES, THOUGH, WERE FAR FROM SATISFIED. On March 29th, 1988, he picked up 22-year-old sex worker Christopher Bryson and took
1: him back to his house. So Christopher Bryson was wandering the streets when Robert Bedella picks him up and he offers him a beer and they, they drive around in his car for a while. Bedella then says, well, come back to my house and you can have a beer there. So Christopher agrees and they go back.
0: Roy Orth was a sergeant with the Kansas City Police Department.
6: He was brought home to provide sexual favors for Berdella and was told to go upstairs as soon as they got there. As Bryson mounted the stairs and started walking up, he was struck from behind and rendered
2: unconscious.
0: With his captive victim sedated, Berdella unleashed agony.
2: Once again, he is tortured, he is assaulted, He is given bleach in the eyes, but this time it's swabbed onto the eyeballs rather than injected in. That would probably be even more painful. There are many nerve endings on the globe of the eye which would react very badly to the bleach.
0: Repeatedly electrocuted, raped, and injected with a cocktail of sedatives, Christopher remained a submissive prisoner for four days. But on the morning of April 2nd, 1988, when Berdella left for work, Christopher managed to set
1: himself free. He finds some matches and he's able to actually burn through the robes that Berdella had restrained him with. So he flees the house wearing only a dog collar.
4: He must have been an extraordinary sight, a naked man wearing a dog collar. He runs across the street, meets a meter reader who's going to a house. They knock on the door. The house owner is astonished, opens the door astonished, won't let Christopher into the house, but does call the police.
6: Chris had been severely physically abused and was asking for help. District officers got there, found this was probably gonna be some kind of an unlawful restraint abduction situation and called the Sex Crimes Child Abuse Unit and our detective responded.
0: Rick Holtzclaw was the assistant prosecutor for the sex crimes unit in Kansas City.
3: Roy Orth called me and said, we need you. And I said, you don't need me today. Um, And he said, no, I'm telling you, we need you on this one. He may have told me briefly what it was that we had someone who had escaped naked with a dog collar. It became evident that they were gonna need some assistance. So I went to the home on that Saturday afternoon and we began the investigation, getting search warrants. And that's how it began.
0: In a little more than three years, Berdella had kidnapped, savagely raped, mutilated, and killed six men, and the police never knew. But the authorities were about to uncover the shocking crimes committed by a sadistic serial killer. Troy Cole was the lead detective in charge of the Berdella case.
5: I first became aware of him uh, April 2, 1988. Uh, I was working in the homicide unit. It was a Saturday. And uh, was called out in regards to a sodomy. The guy alleged that he had been kidnapped and held captive for a number of days. And I was the duty sergeant, which meant that I handled the homicides, the robbery, and the sex crimes for that particular day. Christopher managed to escape and flag down a passerby. That's what brought us to the residence.
0: A traumatized Christopher recounted his ordeal and gave the police the name and address of his captor. When Berdella arrived home that evening, police were waiting for him.
5: When Berdella drove up to the house, we asked him for identification and he produced it. And he said, I live here. And at that point he was immediately arrested for investigation of sodomy. We brought him downtown. I asked him if he would sign a consent to search the residence so we could further the investigation. He refused, he said that uh, he, he would rather talk to his attorney. So at that point, we booked him into the city jail and prepared to get a search warrant.
0: With Christopher's testimony, police were able to obtain a warrant to search Bordella's property the same day.
5: When we first went up to kick the door in, we could hear large dogs in the background. So we called animal control out. Immediate reaction was the house was filthy, had a stench, the, the odor was horrible, uh, clutter and dog feces everywhere was one of the worst houses I'd ever walked into.
0: Using the information provided by Christopher, officers searched Berdella's property for the room where he'd held his victim captive.
5: So our initial thought was to try to find the room to verify his story. So we go upstairs, and after a brief period of time, we found the room that he had described. We found the bed that he had described, and it had restraints tied to the bedpost. So we were pretty sure at this point, his story maybe had some legitimacy to it.
6: There was a device underneath the bed plugged into the wall that was a, it appeared to me to be an electric train transformer. And there were jumper cable clips on the ends of it so that he could attach them to different parts of somebody's body and then increase the electrocution level by turning the
5: transformer selector.
0: In searching the rest of the house, officers discovered Burdella's most prized collection.
5: We discovered several hundred, probably two to three hundred Polaroid photographs that he had taken. Uh, some of the people in the photographs were in obvious signs of being tortured.
6: Eventually, we were able to find detailed torture notes that Bordella had kept on several people, six in fact, and in reviewing those pictures, Probably the most telling was one of a young man that was hanging suspended upside down from a steel I-beam. And what we later learned was the basement of the Berdella home. And this person appeared to be deceased.
0: As the police combed the property, they discovered more and more evidence of Berdella's blood-curdling crimes.
5: A short time later, we found a skull in a closet, which appeared to have been probably fairly recent.
0: The officers collected the evidence. The following day, a pathologist was called in.
5: We had called in a doctor to examine the skull that was in the closet. And he said that in his opinion, that skull probably was less than two years old. and uh, But it would obviously require further examination. So at that point, we sort of cataloged what we could find in the house. It looked like it might, might have some evidentiary value to it.
6: One was a bag of what appeared to be human vertebrae that had, were very clean. Um, obviously, they'd been uh, boiled out, bleached, almost looked like plastic. We also found a skull that was obviously uh, human and hadn't been bleached out yet.
0: The police returned to Burdella's home the next day and left no stone unturned.
6: Berdella kept dogs in the backyard in, a, in an enclosure. And in looking at the backyard, the grass was noticeably greener in a couple of areas, which caused me to think that, you know, possibly there was something else there.
5: So at that point, we decided to bring in a backhoe to dig up that one particular spot where it looked like it might've had a grave marker to it.
6: On the second dig, there was a sucking sound as it dug in and lifted out. I stopped the man immediately and looked, and there was a a human jaw that had been pulled up. And then, of course, we stopped, and eventually we found the full human skull. What it appeared that he was doing was, once he would dismember his victims, he collected the skulls and then would clean them by burying them in the backyard. And after they'd been out there for whatever time he felt was necessary, dig them back up and then clean them out, boil one, bleach them.
0: When police extended their search to Burdella's shop in the bazaar, they found a macabre window display.
6: As you walked up Westport Road, there was a display of human skulls. I think there were two, I can't remember now. And initially, these were so clean that they appeared to be plastic, but it was later determined that they were also Berdella victims.
0: Berdella's obsession with his crimes and brazen behavior were his undoing. But the police still had a mammoth task on their hands.
5: Our biggest challenges early on were identifying all these people that were in the Polaroid photographs. We had no idea when we started the investigation who any of them were. Of the 200, they were not all facial shots. There were some body parts and, and, and people in various stages, but we needed to identify the skull that was found in the closet, and we needed to identify the human head that we dug up in the backyard. So those were our biggest challenges.
0: By using Berdella's photos, detailed notes, and dental records, the police identified two skulls belonging to his victims, Robert, his second, and Larry, his sixth. On August 3, 1988, at Jackson County Circuit Court, Berdella stood before the judge, Alvin Randall, charged with the first-degree murder of Larry.
1: The state decide that they're gonna pursue a prosecution for the murder of Larry first, but before they get very far, Berdella actually confesses he pleads guilty. I
3: think everyone was stunned. Strategically, I think it was a great move on the defense team because at that time, kept the state from filing the death penalty charges against him. Everyone was surprised.
5: I think he pled guilty because he was scared of the death penalty. And I think he felt like we were going to go for the death penalty. And at that point he started working out a deal with his attorney to, let's try to cut a deal to save my life.
0: As the prosecution prepared to take Berdella to trial for the murder of Robert, Berdella made a bargain.
3: Part of the guilty plea was that Berdella sat down with his two defense lawyers and then also with Mr. Hall and Mr. Reeder, the prosecutor and the assistant prosecutor from the murder division. And they spent two days under oath on the record and he would lay out what he did to these victims.
0: From the 13th to the 15th of December, Burdella fully confessed to all six murders.
5: We spent three days with him over in the Jackson County Jail and he was very matter of fact in describing all of the murders. Basically, he didn't show any remorse. I think he enjoyed reliving and describing what he had done to the victims. I think he got a charge out of it and uh, it was a pretty compelling three days.
0: By revealing the true abomination of his crimes to the authorities, he avoided the death penalty. On December 19, 1988, Berdella was sentenced.
1: Berdella is incredibly proud of these murders, of this project, of this extended experiment that he's been conducting. And he really does enjoy reliving this and telling people who appear to want to hear about it. Less than four years later,
0: on October 18th, 1992, Berdella died in Missouri State Penitentiary from a heart attack.
1: He was 43. But Zella receives two life sentences for first-degree murder and four conditional life sentences for second-degree murder.
0: And history will certainly never forget this inhuman killer and the pain and terror he inflicted upon this community. What makes a killer is an audio boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Lauren Vogel, Blair Payton, Pam Burroughs, Karen Bevan, Alexandra Jueno, and Neil Fern. Production for Woodcut provided by Andy Papadopoulos, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kreggi. Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beale, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite pods. If you have some time, please leave us a review. Thank you. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer, Stowe, Scotland, July Fourteenth, nineteen ninety, a six-year-old girl was walking to her friend's house in the small, picturesque village.
5: Alukuman was working his garden and saw a van draw up and saw the wee girl's legs walking under as if she was walking past the van and suddenly disappeared.
0: The man dialed 999. The police rushed to the scene. They managed to stop the driver. When they opened the back of the van, they made a startling discovery.
2: That child is trussed up. She has a plaster across her mouth. She's got a bag over her head. She's minutes away from suffocating.
0: The driver was a 43-year-old delivery man named Robert Black, a prolific pedophile responsible for the rape, assault, and murder of at least four young children in the 1980s. I always feel that what
1: Robert Black did, he did to each and every one of us. He murdered us. He took our lives.